Pumas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's crackalacking? You got Adam Kaplan, the voice in your ears with the unanimous decision. And I have a very special guest with me, Kyle McLaughlin from thefightsite.com. What's going on, baby? Uh, how's it going, Adam, man? I'm glad to be here at last. We've been speaking about it for a long time and uh, glad to finally be, be on the show, man. Absolutely. I, uh, I had the pleasure of having your compadre on, Edward Gallo, and uh, certainly was a hit of a, of a show. And uh, I follow everybody from thefightsite.com, more or less on Twitter, and we always have some good back and forths. And uh, I love the British banter that you bring to the table on Twitter in your timeline. It always gives me a good laugh. And uh, you are never too gun shy to put somebody in their place when they have a when they have a shitty take. So that's why I had to have you on the show, man. So, first thing, uh, let's talk about that Khabib fight, okay? A lot of pound for pound number one talk, a lot of goat talk, uh, a lot of maybe perhaps surpassing the legacy of John Jones. And uh, first, let's get to the the meat and the potatoes. Did you score that first round for Justin Gaethje over, uh, over Khabib? That's a good question. And yes, I did. In terms of the scoring criteria, you know, he, you know, he, la he landed the cleaner, more damaging uh, shots. I think people might misconstrue, uh, misconstrue aggression as going forward. And uh, although Habib was going forward, th there's no way that Gaethje wasn't being aggressive. He was aggressively countering him. And, uh, you know, when he was firing back, he was coming onto the front foot briefly. Um, so, yeah, for me, I was actually still a little bit concerned about Habib's chances uh, after that first round, even with the way it finished. Um, also, I think in terms of, like, you know, uh, you know, effective aggression and damage, don't think you can really say too much about the last 10 seconds with the grappling exchange on the ground there. There wasn't really much going on there. Um, and, you know, anyone who's scoring for, you know, takedown as an aggression, they're still not getting the criteria. So I can see why people thought Habib might have won that round. But for me, definitely, I, I scored it to Gaethje. Understood. I, I, I see where you're coming from. I, I did score it for Habib. I, I didn't think that the takedowns were a factor in him taking the round because there was still a little bit of a lack of control on the ground. They got tied up in a little bit of an armbar set, arm setup. And uh, nothing really formulated after that. It was just Gaethje kind of having his arm tucked into the back of Khabib's knee, which, you know, was lucky for him. Um, however, what I was thoroughly impressed with in that first round was Khabib's jab. I really felt that he pushed forward on that jab and actually impressed a lot of us and not something that we've seen in his past fights. And uh, what I really appreciated about that notion was, although Justin Gaethje was on the back foot for pretty much that entire first round, still managed to set his feet and land those leg kicks and was still actually still, you know, able to land that candid wild hook that, that Gaethje does like to throw. But I do agree with you in the sense that Khabib's um, lack of care and just walking forward I wouldn't necessarily consider it octagon control. I just really considered that as no fucks given. And, you know, had Gaethje have been able to maybe set his feet a little bit more, that could have been to Habib's detriment. Aiden Hayes, uh, who works for the fight site, he, he um, released an excellent post-fight breakdown. And what he gets across is uh, a lot of people think that everybody fights bad against Habib. You know, like they're not challenging him. Not understanding, of course, and a point I've been trying to make for a, for a while, though Aiden articulated it far better than I ever could, um, which was um, 
in order to survive, Habib, you have to tailor your, and cater your style. So, like you said with, with Gaethje, like he he came forward with with, with the leg kicks, and, and Habib sort of said, "Yeah, I don't give a fuck about this," and kept pushing him back, pushing him back, therefore limiting the amount of times that Gaethje could do that. Now, as soon as that happens, Gaethje has to become a completely different fighter, and that's why people look bad against Habib. They don't look bad because they're necessarily they're scared, or you know, like that, like the Tyson effect, or, or or so to speak. They look bad, quote unquote bad, because they're having to cater their style differently to how they would anybody else. Now, we know Gaethje can come forward, blitz guys, uh, aggressively counter them. And we know against Tony Ferguson that he, he demonstrated excellent cage craft, small steps, lateral movement. And what Aiden pointed out was, was that Gaethje actually modified his style to have a crouch. Uh, more like a, a Rocky Marciano-style crouch. Now, that's great in terms of defending the takedowns but it completely restricted his uh, ability to step forward and laterally. So he's compromised straight away. Now, it's not being scared of Habib. It's the stylistic things that Habib brings to the table. Now, you mentioned something about his jab. His really good variant speed jab, which, uh, you know, in, bo in boxing parlance, I, I would say was similar to how uh, Gennady Golovkin jabs, which is, you know, up, down to the chest, and then sort of uh, varying the, the distance, vary, varying the speed, and straight away, that's a rhythm disruptor. And if you add that to what Gaethje had already done disrupting his own style to try and counteract what Habib was bringing to the table, you get a drastically compromised fighter. So it's not Gaethje looking bad, it's Gaethje trying to sound different. Um, and a Habib jab is really good, not even so much as a scoring tool, but in the way that he force Gaethje in the positions he didn't want to be in. And uh, straight away, I mean, you know full well, Gaethje in that Ferguson fight, the distance management was perfect. And Habib straight away didn't allow him to do that. And that's what won Habib the fight. And, you know, it's not just, oh, he grabbed hold of him and took him down. It's everything that led to that. And uh, just a, I know we're going to get to the GOAT talk, but just a, an amazingly, uh, amazingly impressive performance from Habib. Like you say, showing little wrinkles to his game that we hadn't seen before. Exactly. And I like the fact that you mentioned the low crouching stance in Gaethje because that was something that we saw in Ally Aquinta that actually had him have a little bit of, of moments of success against Khabib and, and was quite impressive, although he took the fight on short notice when Habib was supposed to fight uh, Tony Ferguson. But, um, you know, what I really appreciated about that was is that although he did modify his style, Gaethje's mentality of no fucks given is still what propelled him in terms of landing the punches. Because had he had had the low crouching stance and then fought with more caution, I truly believe he would have been outclassed even more uh, than some fans are already thinking about how the fight went. Now, clearly that low crouching stance did propel him to have to maybe lunge a little bit backwards and then use that lateral movement after. But a credit to what you said, he, he wasn't able to get those angles that he just phenomenally did against Tony Ferguson. I mean, when you watch the Tony Ferguson fight and then watch the Khabib one, you know, to the casual eye, they're thinking that they are seeing two completely different fighters. What they fail to realize is, is that there are two different completely there are two different complete fighters in front of Justin Gaethje, okay? The way Tony Ferguson fights is not the same way that Khabib fights. And uh, I do have to say that although it was a detriment, maybe always thinking about the takedown, 
he did have a point because as we saw how the fight did end, the takedown is what was the beginning of the end of that fight. You know, I really want to sort of make a, a little side point about something you just mentioned about the untrained eye. And what really annoys me after big fights, and we saw exactly the same thing uh, the week prior to Habib and Justin Gaethje with the uh, Lomachenko Tiafima Lopez fight, which is people, they look at things in a very basic sense. They look at things in terms of uh, Gaethje fought scared, Gaethje's a white belt on the ground. Now, we know both of those things aren't true, you and I. It's the same thing with the Lomachenko-Lopez fight. Lomachenko didn't do anything for six rounds. What was he waiting for? And they're seeing that in a very black and white sense, and they're not seeing that for every action, there's a, there's a reaction. And in the Lomachenko-Lopez fight, of course, the, the, the action was Lopez keeping Lomachenko's lead hand busy, uh, pivoting with him so he didn't have the usual exit door for his combinations, um, so much so that he couldn't get anything started. And fainting Lomachenko uh, with either hand and following up with that. So Lomachenko thought, oh, I'm not happy with any of the looks I'm getting here. People think that uh, Lomachenko, he likes to take a look at his opponent, take it all in and, and then figure out what he's going to do. Now, that's true. What happened with Lopez was he looked at him, he couldn't analyse the data and thus it took him six rounds to understand and fathom what was going on and formulate a game plan. It's the same with uh, Gaethje in a, in a sense. You know, people go, oh, you know, every opponent that fights Habib, they're scared. Or um, Gaethje, he, he fought completely differently to normal. Like you just said, it's because actually, it's actually quite smart. Gaethje tailoring his performance for the opponent he has in front of him. Now, what it tells me is not so much that uh, Habib beat a guy that, you know, wasn't good enough to beat him, but actually Habib still managed to beat a guy who had tailored his style completely to face him, uh, was well aware, as we know from after the Tony Ferguson fight, what he had to do to survive, which is keep his back off the cage. And still, Habib done something which we very rarely see, which is complete a takedown in open space, uh, uh, off, a, off, a, off a court kick. You said about the Al Iaquinta fight. That's actually true. Al did some really good stuff in that fight. However, I feel like um, I, I rewatched that fight before the, the Gaethje fight, and I feel like uh, Habib kind of thought after two, three rounds, this is really easy. I'm just going to sort of uh, have a bit of fun in there. You know, he, he was very lazy setting up his takedowns. In this, we saw he was laser-focused. As soon as that kick happened, took him down, took his back, mounted him. And you actually mentioned in the first round about the arm bar that, that didn't happen. I read an interesting uh, comment after the fight, which was uh, Habib knew Gaethje's parents were there, so he didn't want to break his arm, which is why he went for the triangle, which is to have that level of focus. And look, you, I don't know, you know what your experience is, Adam, but in a fight, and people that don't have professional fights don't understand this if they've not had a, a, a real fight, which is... In a real fight, you go ham on someone because you're just desperate for it to be over with as soon as possible. You can go boxing every single day. You can go to the MMA gym. And as soon as you're in a confined space on the street having a fight with someone, all that can go out the window. For Habib to be able to, in a high-level prize fight, no doubt, against arguably his toughest challenge, to have the focus to say, oh, I'm not really going to go for this armbar. And when he get, got the mount, I mean, we know from that mounted position, um, people call it S-mount, which I've you know, only become aware of recently from talking to guys like Ryan Wagner, who's really clued up with this kind of stuff. 
the armbar was there for Habib. It was there for him, and he transitioned to the triangle. So that's high-level stuff. People don't realise how high-level. That's impossible. That's impossible. But, yeah, so, like, to sort of wrap up my thoughts on, on Habib and, and the Gaethje fight, it only shows me how high-level Habib is. Rather than Gaethje being seen as an inferior opponent, it only just completely uh, confirms my view that Habib is one of the greatest fighters we've ever seen. Well, I would agree. Anybody who thinks that Gaethje is an inferior opponent is absolutely out of their fucking mind. Gaethje is a devil in there, and he does the devil's work. Uh, I just think that Khabib doesn't care about the devil and just marched forward and stuck to his game plan. And that is one of those things that, you know, I credit Tiafoma Lopez to as well. You know, Lomachenko had a hard time circling towards his right side to light up the left hand because... Lopez had that left hook right uppercut to the body on deck and it, and it seemed majorly successful, especially in that 12th round as well. And uh, that is another thing, you know, Khabib and Lopez stuck to their game plans, didn't think about what their opponent's game plan was, was necessarily going to be. And I think that that's one thing that, that folks fail to remember is, is that the guy who only thinks about his own agenda and stops considering his opponent's agenda will most of the time be the successful one. That's what I believe. And that's why I do think that a guy like Justin Gaethje, even a Conor McGregor will say, had such a hard time against Khabib because it's always Khabib's agenda, Khabib's agenda. I have to watch for the takedown. I can't have my back to the to the fence. There are always so many obstacles. Um, and I also love the fact that you accredited that you could have a world of training, but the second you get in that ring with an opponent, it goes out the window. You know, a quick little story is, is that I've been training for about over five years now, and I got into the ring with somebody who's been training less than a year. For the first two rounds, I had felt like I was in foreign territory and due to the amateur rules and not taking my, my back off of the ropes, I had, I had succumbed to two eight counts over punches that weren't even landing. But the rule set is the rule set in amateur boxing. If you're not moving your feet and you're showing you're in a vulnerable position, you are going to get, you know, tacked with that eight count. In the third round, I said to myself, fuck this, let's forget everything I know and let's make it into a brawl. And that's exactly what I did. If, you know, my opponent said, if I had another 30 seconds, he was taking a knee or he wasn't answering that fourth round for the bell. And I truly believe that's the case. And, you know, that just goes to show people that, you know, the training room and sparring and drilling, et cetera. Yes, it does translate over, but it translates over with 10,000 hours. It doesn't translate for 9,000 hours. It doesn't translate for 500 hours. What it really comes down to is, is that you need to make your drilling and your sparring, you know, become so second nature that it really does emulate in the, in the squared circle or in the cage. So I love that you did bring up that point because some folks are probably looking at a Justin Gaethje and they're like, what the hell was that guy doing? This is the guy that just pieced up Tony Ferguson. Well, styles make matchups. And when you're being forced with different opponents and you're getting different looks, you're going to respond differently. And how you respond is always the most important way in terms of seeing whether someone's going to win or lose. So I love the fact that you brought that up. That's a tremendous, tremendous point. And, you know, that was something that I spoke with Edward Gallo about is, is that you guys are um, you guys are are the adverse you, you're the guys are the complete opposite of, of mainstream you guys are that underground hardcore indie website that doesn't look at what the naked eye is looking at you guys are almost seeing through that trying to really paste the picture the pieces together and and bring hardcore and casual fans more light and understanding of what the hell is actually going on because 
some folks put $100 on a fight and they think that their opinion is valid in terms of what is going on in a fight. And that to me is just a complete utter disgrace. And that is one of the things that I love in terms of keeping up with you guys is just learning more and more about the game and just having a better understanding and just knowing that you guys are watching not only the 25 minutes that has happened, but you're watching maybe the same sequences over and over and over again to the point that most people would have to watch their fight at a at a very, very slow speed to understand the setups and the feints and the distance control and all of these different things that actually lead up to the moments that happen in the octagon or the ring. So, you know, again, that's something that I always appreciated about the fightsite.com. Um, you know, I, I accredited Edward Gallo in terms of how he was talking about Jorge Masvidal's performance against Usman, where, you know, his wrestling is so good, but it's always tentative in the sense that it's always just to get, it's always just to get by and not get swept into something else. And he never generates that strong defense into something offensive. And he almost gets too comfortable uh, up against the cage and in those sequences. And it's almost as if, you know, that proud Cuban has something to prove that I'm not the guy who was in Kimbo Slice's backyard. And I'm not the guy that you always look to win performance of the night because I'm swinging for the, for the fences. So let me show you what I could do in terms of on the cage. And this guy only had foot stomps to answer with and, and, and nothing else. But however, you have to show that urgency. You got to make something out of it. And I just feel that that's the only frustrating thing in Masvidal's wrestling game is that it's so, it's so strong on the defensive front that he completely forgets about the offensive. And that's something that I learned from, from Ed. And I, I, I loved having him on the show. And I'm going to ask you the same question as I asked him before, because he, he almost, he almost made me fucking jump out of my clothes when he answered uh, which fighter I think almost won the uh, should have maybe won an uh, uh, UFC championship or an MMA title based on some of their performances. I'll tell you later who uh, who he said. I almost jumped out of my shirt because I thought it was hilarious. But when he broke it down to me and he just talked about it in separate sequences, I understood completely where he was coming from. So moving on to that, let's talk about uh, quickly Jared Cannonier versus Robert Whitaker because I know you were super high on, yeah, on, uh, on Whitaker. I know you were absolutely high on him. I'm just going to chime in quickly and say one thing. I, I was predicting uh, Whitaker to, to lunge in a lot, uh, be a little bit too forced with his striking like we've seen in the past versus Izzy or, or maybe even Darren Till. But what I really appreciated is, is that he stayed behind his jab. And although that karate stance was a detriment for, her, for him to get off that right hand because his hips weren't square enough, he was still using that right high kick like a right hand. And that's what I really, really like to see. And as we saw it, it, it actually fractured the ulna bone of Jared Cannonier, which kind of set the tone for the remaining of the fight. So why don't you talk to me about uh, Rob the Reaper, baby? Well, you're right. I'm a massive uh, Rob Whitaker fan. And I just want to sort of, uh, with a caveat, because when, when I first saw Rob Whitaker, it was on uh, Ultimate Fighter, the Smashes. And I found him a, a totally boring... Uh, fighter to be honest with you I sort of just thought yeah he's one of these uh, karate type of converts and uh, he's never going to go anywhere and uh, when I wrote for Bloody Elbow back in the day I, I basically picked him to lose every fight he ever had in the UFC on the predictions I always thought he'd lose um, so he's completely sort of uh, exceeded my expectations to become one of my favourite fighters so much so on heavy hands last week they kind of uh, Ed and uh, Conor Rebush there uh, poked fun at me 
because I, I obviously I was going to pick Rob to lose against Cannonier because uh, he's probably the only fighter that I cannot be an objective analyst for, and I get generally like scared whenever he fights. So yeah, I mean I was jumping out of my jumping out of my seat when uh, when when Rob was performing really well in the first two rounds, but kind of in a point fighting style. Um, obviously I didn't know about the arm the arm break at the time, and his leg looked pretty bad, and you know. It's all good sort of jabbing your man up, but it doesn't mean that the, the danger's gone. Uh, and the, the, the third round came, obviously, in that beautiful combination, double jab, right hand, all to mask that right high kick, which is just a, a beautiful combination. Uh, moving, it, moving him back and then moving him to the side to open up that angle for the kick. And then and Cannonier is obviously a, a ridiculously tough dude, and then he's flying back against the cage. And I'm not going to lie, even as a long-time MMA fan, when Cannonier clipped Whitaker late, I paused the fight. I paused the TV and I thought, uh, there's only 40 seconds left in a round. I'm going to wait 40 seconds and then I'm just going to fast forward to the end of the, and skip to the end and make sure that Rob didn't get knocked out. And that's what I did. And I was, I was shouting so loud. My dog ran in and was like, are you okay, man? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. Come and sit with me. And it was like, you know, it was like watching a horror movie. You know, I needed, some, I needed to be consoled. But um, definitely, the, the, you just mentioned the Till fight. Rob, Rob didn't look himself in the till fight. He looked hesitant against a low output counter puncher, uh, counter striker. Generally a counter puncher till, but yeah, a counter striker. Uh, in this fight, he looked he looked like he was feeling himself. And I've just kind of come to accept now that Rob getting dropped and stung and hurt, that's not indication that he's passed his best. It's actually just something that happens in most of his fights because he doesn't he hasn't fought non should we call it non lethal competition. I'm not going to say non-elite because he has faced some non-elite operators in my opinion, but he hasn't faced non-lethal opposition for what? Four years? You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, from like Brunson onwards, so you got like Brunson which, who, who was getting better at that point, but then you got Jacare, Yael times two, scheduled to fight Gaston, uh, eventually fights Izzy, then Till, who, yeah, again, he's low, low output, but he's not exactly a, an inner... Um, a non-offensive fighter, you know, he is, he carries some danger, uh, and, and now Cannoneer, he's an ex-heavyweight, and then he was still huge at 205, and we know he's basically just melting people at, at 185, so, I mean, I don't necessarily think that the, the Izzy fight will end any differently, but I think that Rob can bring something different to the table, make it more interesting, he's the only interesting fight out there for Izzy, and I kind of feel like against everyone else, even if he has some rocky moments, I favour Rob against pretty much everyone else in the division, Paolo Costa included. You know, I still think that, that Rob's right up there. And although as a Whitaker fan, you're always going to have some hair-raising moments in a fight, feel a lot more comfortable where he's at now. Really good performance, sturdy. And uh, I'm not too, I don't know about you, but I'm not too concerned about the last minute of the fight. He, he, he come through well. He knew what he was doing. He knew where he was. Re-established control against the cage and just waited out. You know, pretty... Uh, professional performance I would agree in terms of the professional performance um, there were moments where perhaps I thought that maybe Cannoneer could steal the fight in the last minute of the round although I was pretty confident in Whitaker's performance that he would prevail and would overcome uh, one thing that I wanted to point out is is when he had Cannoneer backing up to the cage just how smooth that takedown was just how smooth it was. And although Cannoneer is a tough, strong, athletic guy who was able to get back up quickly, I did see that takedown. And I kind of thought to myself, hmm, 
Wouldn't that be a great entry on Izzy? Wouldn't that be he did something? the same thing, Adam? He did the same thing towards the end of the till fight. Started wrestling him and also using his wrestling to set up strikes. You know, shooting, shooting for a single or a double and then coming back up with that awesome, that awesome sweeping left hook that he's got. Yeah, it might be a good way to deal with Izzy. I'd still be really concerned about knees and then you know, Izzy's like hair trigger reflexes on kicks and knees, like how he destroyed Brunson. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if you're going to approach it, if you're going to approach it in any way, that's the way to do it. That kind of blitzing in, which he's always done, but he's kind of scaled back since the Adesanya fight, but for some reason amped it up to 10 in the Adesanya fight and just... I don't know whether Rob almost wanted to lose the title. Not that Izzy wouldn't have beaten him anyway, but kind of like the title and all that time out was like a burden to him. And kind of thought, do you know what? I'm just going to go for this guy. And if I get knocked out, so be it. He didn't even seem disappointed they lost the belt. And they, they spoke to him after the Cannoneer fight and said, like, you know, do you want to fight Izzy again? And he kind of said, not really, but if I have to, I have to. And that's a guy for me now who just like, it's not like he's not stressed out about reclaiming the title. He's just stressed out about staying healthy, turning up the fights and doing the best he can. And I kind of feel like for someone like Rob, who's so chill most of the time, that's what he needs. You're well aware. He's well-documented burnout, constant injuries. That's not the fighter we need to see. We need to see a guy who goes in there relaxed because as we've seen from this, uh, from the Cannoneer fight, when he's relaxed, he gives a really relaxed performance. He doesn't need to dive in there and get caught with big shots. As a matter of fact, the third round uh, when he got clipped, Cannoneer shifted in the southpaw and caught him with a right hand over one of Rob's jabs. So it was actually a count punch that hurt him, not wasn't him getting counted because he was blitzing in. It was a little smart move from Canada. So I'm not concerned. And um, yeah, man, if you've got any closing thoughts, please. I'm, I'm sorry if to cut you off. You just, you've got my brain, no, my brain I, ticking uh, there. I, I love it, man. I, I love to see when somebody is high on a fighter, especially one that isn't necessarily in the mouths and the eyes of, of the everyday fan. So I have absolutely no issue with that whatsoever. That's exactly why we have you on the show. Um, you know, for me, my closing thought is, is that I kind of like the fact that uh, Robert Whitaker is not chopping at the bit to get back to the title. I think he's setting aside, I think he's putting his personal values ahead of his professional ones, you know, thinking about the pressure, thinking about the mental health issues that it's perhaps caused him, thinking about, um, you know, him being happy with what he's achieved and, and what he has uh, grown in terms of a family man and, and his brand on Twitch and et cetera and et cetera. So I just love the fact that, you know, people, I don't like actually the fact that people think that him not being so gung-ho to fight for the title again is, is, uh, is, is kind of taking it in a way that he's non-serious or that he's scared or whatever the case may be. I just think that Robert Whitaker understands what Robert Whitaker has gone through more than anybody else. And he's not trying to put himself in a position that he once was in. And I also think that perhaps maybe the thought of being the champ and the thought of fighting Izzy again brings back a little bit of some nightmares and some bad memories that perhaps he's not ready to go forward with. And I think that after maybe a couple of more wins, you know, going back to his family and, and relishing in the victory and getting that confidence back for lack of a better term uh, will then be something that he should go forward with. And also, you know, the way that Izzy has been handling himself on Twitter and on social media and in the cage, um, you do have to understand that it, it is becoming a little bit of, uh, you know, of a McGregor-esque 
uh, sort of sort of setup in the sense of when you're fighting Izzy, it's not only a challenge that you have to face in the cage, but also the lead up to it and perhaps afterwards and all of the bullshit that comes with it. And I know that Robert Whitaker only really cares about the 15 to 25 minutes that happen in the octagon. You see it in his delivery. You see it in his demeanor in the interviews. He's not all about that life. What he's about is, is what goes on in the cage. And I think that he's just not really ready and willing right now to have to deal with all of the antics that perhaps will come with fighting the future Izzy Adesanya. So I, I, uh, I'm perfectly fine with the, with the take and the stance that he's taking, because like I said, he understands best what he went through in those scenarios and nobody wants to revisit those, especially when you're on the up and up. And I do believe he could go in there and fight a Jack Hermanson and have a phenomenal performance. He could go in and fight a Paula Costa and have another phenomenal performance. And another thing also is, is that Robert Whitaker is going to sell out any Australian stadium. Robert Whitaker is going to sell out any, any Kiwi stadium in New Zealand. So does he really necessarily need to have the belt? I truly don't believe so. You know what I mean? I think that Robert Whitaker is a staple on that side of the world in any place that he fights in with or without the belt. So, you know what? I credit him for his relaxed demeanor, and I also credit him for his ferocious demeanor in the octagon. And also, those guys are in a much, much, much better uh, COVID situation than both you and I are. So, uh, if UFC does want to get back to doing stadiums, Izzy versus Rob in either Australia or, or New Zealand makes perfect sense because uh, if they can uh, follow protocols and it's you know six, seven months down the line and those guys are still uh, doing well, then uh, I guess that's the place and uh, it would be absolutely huge. And, and like you say, in Australia, they really do, you know, sports fans over there, they really love their own and uh, yeah, he's, he's well loved over there. The thing about Izzy is as well, like outside of the, um, the kind of uh, the awful... Uh, ring walks and cage walks. Don't think there's any animosity really between him and Rob. He's a respectful guy, um, Rob, and even even Paolo Costa's nice to him. So, yeah, if Paolo's being nice to you, then you must be just the nicest guy on the planet. So, um, I don't think uh, I don't think the Izzy uh, Rob rematch would be too much of uh, it won't be too much in a way a toxic build up. I think it'd be uh, although the UFC would obviously prefer that, um, yeah, to sell a fight. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Is he going heel anytime soon? I, I, again, I, not against Rob anyway. Right. Well, I would. Uh, I would hate to see a little bit of banter between those two guys because I think it would come off as completely unnatural, and I don't think it would make much sense. Now, we did mention a couple of names today that is going to segue to our next segment in terms of John Jones and. Uh, and Izzy, but I don't really want to talk about that. I think that that's a little bit too uh, far away to have to worry about that. One thing that I want to discuss is, is what is your stance on Khabib surpassing John Jones on the pound for pound uh, list? Well, we posted a, a round table on the fight site a couple of days ago, which was called, uh, is Habib the goat? Um, and for me, when we did our initial top 20 um, in winter of 2019 and the first few months of, of, of this year, 2020, um, I already had John, I had John Jones, I think fifth or sixth. I can't quite remember. That's not really important. Um, I had to be, but like ninth or 10th. Um, and you know, but the actual list we, we'd started in, in like summer of 2019, like actually, you know, the long, the reason there was a long time between the gestation of the list and the actual articles is because basically I took too long to write my articles because as you know, Adam, like my articles were always quite in depth in terms of uh, 
sort of historical accuracy and using a lot of annotated primary sources. So, like, for example, it took me three months just to write one article on Demetrius Johnson. I'm not going to lie and say that every single day I was researching, but when you do that amount of research, you can... I had a bit of a Robert Whitaker-style burnout when it came to writing, do you know what I mean? So I had to sort of take some time off and, and I, I delayed the list. In that time, Habib had beaten Poirier. Our list was already outdated because people were like, oh shit, that's an unwanted contender against a fighter that we already rate highly. I wonder if he'd already be higher on the list. And then obviously Gaethje beats Ferguson and then Habib beats Gaethje, making it even more impressive a win. So we did a little re-evaluation and, and for me... He's in that hallowed ground, that top, that sort of top five, uh, which previously for me had um, sort of Max Holloway, Fedor, and John Jones fighting out for the fifth spot. So that's my kind of fifth to seven kind of thing. Uh, and then, uh, then in the top four, I had kind of like uh, obviously George Saint Pierre was my number one. Then uh, Aldo was actually not true. I actually had McGregor second because on the day of doing my t- top twenty. I moved McGregor from like fourth to second just to fuck with the algorithm of the list, to be honest with you. Just because I thought everyone's got Aldo number one. I'm going to see what happens if I move Aldo back to three. Didn't mean anything because everyone else had Aldo number one. So I had uh, Aldo at three. Um, although as of today, you know, I'd have, I'd have Aldo at three anyway. And I'd have Habib and GSP fighting out for the number one spot. So for me, John Jones was never in the equation. Certainly a couple of years ago, like before I started really critically evaluating Jones's opponents because obviously I'm an older guy and a lot of the guys that Jones beat were guys that I idolised. Shogun and, 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 got, and Rampage and guys like that. Um, and I really liked Machida and, and those kind of guys and, and I was a massive DC fan. And I still am a massive DC fan. I don't care what all my colleagues say. I love DC. You know, like DC for me was like, he was the perfect guy to beat John Jones. That's my guy. That's the one that's going to beat him. And obviously he didn't. Twice. The first fight was demoralising for me because I saw no way that Jones was going to bully him in the clinch. And he just dominated him every, in every facet of the game. So that for me, that's like, you know, those are the only wins now for me. The Cormier ones where I really go, wow, that's a special, special fire. And actually, although guys I idolised, you know, re-watching all them pride fights and, you know, your listeners can't see, but I've got a Sakuraba poster on the wall here. Um, big Pride fan. That's my era, you know. Um, I kind of had to reevaluate him and go, actually, you know, Shogun's knees were screwed. And and actually, Machida could have made 185 and Rashad could have made 185. And, and I'd never really rated Gustafsson that highly. Strangely enough, I'm, I'm one of the few people that, could totally see that the Gustafsson Jones the first fight that's not a robbery for me there's clear swing rounds in that that's not a robbery I'm giving Jones full credit for that Um, so even acknowledging that I believe that John Jones is the greatest light heavyweight of all time I have to kind of say how much is that actually worth because as a boxing historian being the greatest heavyweight of all time which Muhammad Ali obviously is that's not as impressive as being the say, second or third greatest lightweight of all time because there's more fighters, there's more depth, there's more historical depth, more all-time greats, more competitive errors. Whereas in heavyweight, there's only two or three really, really good errors of heavyweight. Uh, uh, and in light heavyweight, there's only really been one really good competitive error, you know, where we had Shogun, Ricardo Arona, Vandalay Silva, Sakuraba, Rampage Jackson, 
you know, little nog all in their prime and pride. Um, what John Jones has basically done is similar to what Mike Spinks done in, in boxing, which is there was a great era before him. And then he came over and became a great fighter, basically for beating all the, the best guys that had already taken lumps out of each other. Now, what makes Mike Spinks one of the greatest fighters of all time is that um, he still had a couple of good wins over prime lot heavyweights and he went up and beat Larry Holmes for the heavyweight title. So if John Jones is going to break into that top five with Aldo, GSP, Habib now, uh, Mighty Mouse, obviously, Demetrius Johnson, and in my opinion, Max Holloway, although um, Max Holloway is really difficult for me to, and I'll get back to Max in a second. I don't want to go too off, too off topic. But if Jones is going to do that, really needs to go out and beat Stipe. It's not good enough to beat DC, who later on to win the heavyweight title. Jones has got to go up and beat Stipe for the heavyweight title, or Ngannou, whoever wins that match. That's the kind of thing. Like, And even then, it's like, heavyweight's not a great division either. Being you know the number one in two weak divisions is, is not that impressive to me. Same reason I don't rate Nunes in the top five or top ten like a lot of people are, because for me, like, yes, yeah, amazing achievement to be the, the absolute best in two divisions. But the achievement uh, is the, the quality of the achievement is denoted by what you do to, to achieve that. So, you know, um, let me think of something really, really stupid, but to get my point across, um, you know, if you are the world record holder for, uh, I don't know, most Tic Tacs eaten in an hour, that's, that's cool. But if no one else has ever tried to break that record, it's not really much of a record, is it? So, like, you know, John Jones, he's beaten, he's cleared out 205. And how many good fighters have joined to it? I'll ask you, Adam. How many top, top fighters have actually entered the UFC 205-pound ranks in all the time that Jones has been champion? How many? Not that many. It's, in fact, it has, has been one of the shallower divisions. Dominic Reyes looked good. Then he got destroyed by uh, Jan Blachowicz. And then you go, oh, did, was Reyes that good? Or was he just, I mean, like, the best wins on, on Reyes is really old Weidman, who never should have been at 205. Just yep. couldn't make 185 anymore. Now we can, apparently. You can make it again. You know, and then Reyes, yeah, I mean, I thought Reyes was a fighter of some promise. And then it looked like, oh, my God, he definitely is, because look how he just performed against John Jones. Uh, well, actually, no, John Jones is probably past his prime. The chance of John Jones reinvigorating himself and recapturing that fire and adding legacy-defining fights to his resume is not just dependent on moving up and fighting Stipe. It's dependent on the fact that he might already be past his best. You know, this, the John Jones we see today, this kind of uh, low-accuracy, low-output wannabe kickboxer, is not the John Jones I was awed by when he came on the scene and was throwing people about like uh, crash test dummies. You know what I mean? That was the John Jones to me that I thought, this guy's goat material. Um, so even ranking him on the, his prime, uh, yeah, I mean, that was one of the best fighters I've ever seen. Uh, but even that, you know, like if you take the last 10 years and, and all the scalps he's claimed, you'll find, Adam, and you would have seen this a lot, if you tell anyone that John Jones isn't the goat, it's look how many former world champions he beat. Look how many former world champions he beat, uh, which, which is kind of impressive. Um, but if you look at Demetrius Johnson, like he beat the reigning lineal flyweight champion, Tachi Palace fights, Ian McCall. He beat the future 
two-weight champion, Henry Cejudo. He beat future two-weight champion in different organizations, of course, uh, Kyoji Horiguchi. Uh, and, and that shows that he's fighting fighters on, on the ascendancy rather than over the hill. That, for me, is more impressive. Um, I don't know about you, but I mean, I'm sure you're on the same wavelength as me. Horiguchi, you could say, is a little bit pre-prime, um, to which I always ask people, you know, how much did you watch of Horiguchi and Shuto? They haven't got a clue what I'm talking about. You know, you've got to do your research. You said earlier about the sort of the, the minutiae that we look at things in the fight site. It's not just a case of um, assessing, say, any sequence in any given fight. It's assessing how that opponent does in a similar exchange against different opponents who bring different things to the table. It's like the whole Habib uh, open space takedown thing. You know, oh, well, Habib isn't very good at open space takedowns. Then he does one. And it's like, wow, I was totally wrong. Because you've got all that other evidence to fall back on. With John Jones, all we've got evidence of recently is uh, poor performances against previously beaten fighters that weren't that great at other weight classes and uh, poor performance against a guy who looked the goods and then was shown up to have uh, porous defense and absolutely uh, no way of, of dealing with a pretty basic uh, blitz from Jan Blachowicz. And I like, I like Jan. You know, I mean, I've been a fan of this for a while, but let's talk Turkey here. Um, John Jones has not beaten an elite fighter in years. And uh, before that, he had, probably hadn't beaten any elite fighters either. Saying that, still an absolute all-time great, still the greatest in his weight class. I'm not a fascist. I'm not going to be like, oh, light heavyweight sucks. Still give major props for his achievement. But um, yeah, I, I, I have, to your original question, because I've gone on a massive tangent, Adam, yes, I do believe Habib is greater. Yes, I do believe he's beaten better opposition in what I believe is the greatest ever weight class in mixed martial arts history. Well, it definitely seems as if we are, if I were to sum that up, is is that uh, Habib has been successful in the quality department, whereas John Jones has been successful in the quantity department. Um, yes. One, you know, I, I certainly see what you're saying in the sense of beating a lot of former pride champions and top contenders, you know, Rua, fucking uh, Rampage, Rampage Jackson, Rampage. And then, you know, also you have to take into consideration the Rashad Evans fight. Rashad was already at a disadvantage due to the fact that he was basically kicked out of the Jackson's camp because Jackson and Wink had found their new golden goose egg, which we've seen happen again and again within that camp. Oh, yeah. So there was already a little bit of emotional distress that Rashad was going into uh, in terms of fighting that, that fight versus John Jones. And I, I do like the fact that you did say that he did fight a couple of guys that were past his prime. I would say that DC has to be his most impressive victory. Um, I actually felt that DC was doing well in both fights before, uh, you know, he was succumbed to, to the losses. And, um, you know, I, you have to take into consideration also the Alexander Gustafson fight that some people thought was entirely close, and then he claims he didn't train for. Then you have Tiago Santos that blew out both knees and still managed to look uh, more or less impressive. How about the OSP fight after the long layoff when all he had was an oblique kick, and he really didn't want to engage much all at all? You look at Khabib's last fight, he was going headfirst against one of the most dangerous strikers in the UFC. So I, I do see what you're saying in terms of, of the pound-for-pound pound best, uh, could be being ranked over John Jones. I'm going to say something that goes above and beyond all of that. Khabib has never been arrested. Khabib has never disappointed the fans. 
Khabib has never gotten himself blatantly suspended. Khabib has never had to defend himself in terms of performance-enhancing drugs. And that's why I have to take John Jones off of that list. That's also why the spider Anderson Silva has dropped off my list. And it, you know, for me, the number one is GSP. There's no arguing for me. He fought every single killer in their prime at the welterweight division, unlike a John Jones. So I got to go with George, especially with the time that he lasted in the cage with all of those fighters. He definitely was at risk of perhaps getting caught in something. And that wasn't the case. So for me, my number one is George. Call me biased as a Canadian. Call me biased as a Montrealer. But that is absolutely who I'm going with. John Jones has, like an Anderson Silva, in my opinion, has tainted their legacy with performance-enhancing drugs. John Jones, more than Anderson Silva, because of the arrests and the other antics and whatever the case may be. And, you know, just to really put the cherry on top of it, the fact that John even needed to go on Twitter and go on a three-day tangent trying to fucking defend himself really goes to show you how insecure he has himself feeling about his legacy. I love the tangent you went on. It, It does make absolute sense. Most folks have no idea what the fuck you're talking about anyways because they just think that Pride was another shitty Japanese promotion that the UFC purchased, not knowing that they were actually their most impressive competitor thus far uh, in terms of a a counter promotion. Far more impressive than Bellator, far more impressive than one championship. And uh, so for me, you know, the fact that people don't understand the wars that Rua has been in, people don't even understand that Rampage Jackson has been completely humanized by a Vanderlei Silva in the tie clinch in pride. People don't even understand that. And, and, and couldn't even wrap their heads around it. They just think that John Jones winning by rear naked choke was actually one of the more impressive victories in his career. They don't even understand that Evanderlei Silva had, had Rampage's neck being supported by the ropes due to the detriment of the tie clinch. So, you know, I, I, I do like the fact that you did say that. A lot of folks will disagree. I think the pound-for-pound pound talk is bullshit anyways because these guys or women are not going to be fighting in the cage together. So why are we talking about hypothetics here? We're talking about the least hypothetical sport here right now, yet we have the most hypothetical ranking system in terms of the pound-for-pound. Pound. So I'm not really a fan of it altogether, and I do like the tangent that you went on. Folks will disagree. That's okay. This is exactly why we talk about it and Perhaps we'll create more of a conversation about it. Um, Maybe currently, yes, it would be Khabib because GSP hasn't been in the game for a little bit of time, but I still have to rank George uh, higher, although George would probably counter that and say that Khabib would because George is such a humble guy and uh, almost too humble, almost too nice at times, and I do wish he had a little bit of a mean streak to him. But uh, I, I, I do like your point. I don't really do the whole pound for pound list, so I couldn't even tell you mine because there are arguments for every single category. I mean, the tangent that you went on in terms of uh, accrediting Demetrius Johnson, a lot of people would say guys like uh, Ian McCall and Kyoji Horiguchi aren't even people that are worth bringing up in discussions. And some would say that his most important victories were against, you know, Joe, Joe Benavidez or, uh, and, and, the Henry, and the Henry Cejudo one. Yes, who know, yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely correct, by the way, by saying that pound for pound is essentially worthless. Um, I'm someone who does a lot of historical rankings lists uh, in boxing and MMA, um, but not because I care about the order. The great thing about coming up with your own pound for pound list is it's a springboard to a greater discussion. 
which is you then get to uh, learn and discuss and pick up facts about different eras, different fighting styles, different primes, different great runs that people were on. Um, you might discover a fighter you'd never heard of before. Rankings, hypothetical, all-time rankings, that is, not the current bullshit ones that can actually uh, uh, completely... Uh, defer the outcome of someone's pay or the kind of fights they're going to get. But I mean, like the hypothetical ones you just spoke of are super important in terms of uh, furthering your knowledge. Because when I first got into writing about, uh, not sorry, not even writing about, but discussing classic boxing, uh, I was still in my teens, I'd say, oh, I think so-and-so is the, the greatest fighter of all time. And people would say, have you not heard of this guy? And I'd go, no, I haven't. Tell me. And then I'd go off and do my own research and I realized how wrong I was. The problem is nowadays is that, um, you know, Twitter and Facebook was not a thing back then. Uh, nowadays, people will say, I think this guy is the greatest. And you go, what about this aspect of their career? What about this aspect or this facet of this opponent's style that means it's not as important a matchup, uh, sorry, important a victory as you seem to think it is. And rather than, taking that information and, and then coming back either with a rebuttal. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm always correct, but someone, if someone wants to come back to me and say, actually, I've taken that into consideration, but what about this? I think that's great too. But we don't get that. We get, shut the fuck up. You're a hater. You're a, you're a Khabib fanboy. You're this, you're that. Um, apart from Robert Whittaker, you know, I don't allow like fanboyism to get in the way of objective analysis. Um, and I think that people don't understand that nowadays. They think it's either this camp or this camp. Uh, and that's the thing. Most of the people that are complaining about John Jones, people, people think that John Jones isn't the GOAT. They're not analysing based on what his resume is. They're not analysing based on what his achievement is. They're just really unhappy that nobody likes their favourite fighter as much as they do. And that's the problem with this. I've seen it all before. And those guys, I mean, I'm pretty known for having a, a, a pretty... Uh, dense block list on Twitter because people who don't want to argue in good faith, not argue, sorry, debate in good faith. I've got no time for those people. Just, just block them, move on. And a lot of these John Jones fans, they seem to be like that. They also think that if you don't have John Jones, number one, you can't be a fan of John Jones. Now, further to your point, Adam, where you completely like exclude or drop guys down the list because of their out of cage uh, issues. Uh, I understand that entirely. Um, for me personally, I only really look at what happens in the fights and the opponents. Obviously, steroids in that instance is something you, you, you need to take into account. Yes. So I would take that into account. Less so the hit and runs and stuff like that. That only convinces me he's a, a shitty person. And, uh, you know, Carlos Monzon killed his wife, but he's still one of the greatest middleweights of all time in boxing. And I sort of don't let that get in the way. Charles Manson was a scumbag, but some of his songs are quite cool, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I don't really let the art get in the way of the artist. Uh, I might hate the artist, but still be able to assess their art. So assessing John Jones on an art perspective, I definitely prefer the grapply uh, John Jones, the kind of guy who did weird shit, like jump over Ryan Bader and, and, and then take his back. Uh, the kind of guy that, you know, did the, uh, and I know you're Canadian, so I hate to bring this name up, but we're talking about art separating the artist. I used to love it when John Jones used to take people for a Chris Benoit-esque ride and just suplex them over and over again. That was the John Jones I liked, not this safety first, kickboxer like you say the oblique kick master um who seems unwilling to get engaged in actual fights people say that's smart it is smart 
but not when you're going to really close decisions with shitty fighters. Then it's not sh- smart tactics, is it? That's you're then not actually like Floyd Mayweather might have been safety first. He knew how to win rounds, clearly win rounds. Yeah, GSP was like that to some extent, where he could control people, but he knew how to win rounds. John Jones is doing what he's doing now to the detriment of winning rounds, clearly. So, and like you said, the Twitter rant, he said, oh, look, I've got 14 title defences and Habib has got only three. Like you just said, quality over quantity, that's it for me. It's a case-by-case basis. GSP, he's got the quality and the quantity, which is why I agree with you. He's number one. Could I see a case for Habib, number one? Absolutely. Could I see a case for Jose Aldo, number one? Absolutely. Demetrius Johnson, yes. Max Holloway, or said I'd come back round to... Max is hard to assess now because the performance he put in against Volkanovski in the rematch was so impressive. And if he'd come away with the win, then you'd go, wow. Um, but there was too many, there was two swing rounds in there and I actually scored it to Volkanovski. So what I will say is, for me, Holloway is clearly amongst the pound-for-pound pound elite. Doesn't quite have that victory that will push him to the top. Uh, like, Aldo had against Edgar and Mendes and, uh, and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, John Jones doesn't, doesn't have it either. DC ain't enough. DC ain't enough, you know. And uh, I really want to see – I want to see John Jones try and challenge himself. I'm sure you do as well. Yes. And um, I wish uh, – you said a minute ago about you don't want to get into the Izzy and John Jones thing. I want both of those guys to either shit or get off the pot. Fight yes. each other or John, move up, fight Stipe. Um don't know about you, but I'm really not interested in what I'm hearing this week about Izzy potentially fighting Jan Blachowicz for the light heavyweight title. It doesn't really interest me. Um, but both of those guys, shit will get off the pot. Yeah. I, I, I am interested in seeing Izzy fight Jan just because it'll it'll add another tidbit to his resume and perhaps get him paid a lot more money, et cetera, et cetera. Another reason why I'm interested in it is, is that I'm under the impression that if John does go up to heavyweight, he is not going to be able to come back down to 205. I think that no way. You know, he's, he's past his prime in the sense of, of the weight cutting being easy for him. He's going to look to put on that muscle. He's going to get used to the fact of, you know, I like to call it that McGregor belly. After McGregor stopped cutting weight, you started to see a different physique to him. We also saw a different style, not light on his feet, not not having that same in and out, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that enjoying those luxuries of not being, not having to diet down as much makes a fighter a lot more comfortable and not a comfortable sense that is uh, that helps them positively that survival mode that these guys through by starving themselves and then cutting a different having a difficult weight cut does also add to a little bit of that grit that they come into the octagon with so i don't think that that fight will necessarily happen should uh john go up to heavyweight so i think maybe that's why that they're they're going to maybe want izzy to go up also at the fact that there isn't really anybody impressive uh impressive enough except maybe for a, a whitaker uh, to challenge Izzy for the middleweight belt. One thing that I just wanted to comment on about John Jones to sum up the quality over quantity thing is one of the biggest detriments for John Jones's latest additions in terms of his matchups have been the simple fact that he has played to the level of his opponents and he has not completely and utterly blown them out of the water and surpassed them like a Khabib. And that is why I do final answer have Khabib ranked over John Jones because John Jones has... M- 
time and time again recently only played to the level of his opponents. And I think that that has been the biggest detriment in his last few fights. He should have ripped their fucking heads off, pounded their head in like he did against a Vladimir, uh, a Vladimir uh, Matsushenko, Ma- I believe. Matsushenko, yeah. yeah. Bonner or, or a Brandon yeah. Vera or a Bonner yeah. or whatever the case. Yes, yes, yes. You know, the caliber is different and how could you compare and whatever the case may be. But you know what? I just think that he's played to the level of, of those fighters. So I, I do agree with, uh, with what you're saying in terms of that. Now, the last segment that I wanted to get into before we wrap it up is, is that I have a feeling I already know one, one of these answers. Actually, I don't now because he did win a belt. Now, I asked Edward the same question, and I got to say I asked him, which fighters never won a title that you believe you know, could have or should have or would have won a belt? And one of his answers was if you were to edit out a bunch of five to 10 second sequences and put it into a 15 to 25 minute fight, uh, you would be thoroughly impressed by him. And his response to one of them was Nordine Taleb. Uh, your listeners can't see how surprised I am right now. I told you I jumped out of my fucking clothes. I couldn't help but be completely and utterly shocked. And then obviously a more realistic response was, I do know that Eddie does have a very fond feeling for this man, just like you do for Robert Whitaker, and that's Chad Mendes. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I'll say this quickly. Ed and I speak every single day and have done for years. Uh, you know, I think Ed and I have known each other, you know, on a more than a casual basis for for two, two and a half years now, you know, um, at least. Um, and I've never seen, I've never heard him bring up Maudine Taleb, ever, ever. Um, Mendes, yes. Um, Ed loves Mendes. Mendes would be one of my shouts, but as, as he went for him, I, I won't say it. Um, Sharam knew I was coming on the podcast. Uh, Sharam Morana Darren, who works for the fight site, uh, hosts the uh, MMA podcast with, with Danny Martin there. And he, I, said, I told him what the topics were, and he said, you've got to shout out Joseph Benavides. I'm not going to shout out Joseph Benavides because as much as I love Joe B, um, you know, Joe B's had uh, one, two, three, four title shots now. Was the second cruise fight a title fight? Yes. Yes, it was. Right. The second uh, cruise one was the title. Cruise, cruise two. Benavidez, the second fight, right? WEC title, Bantamweight. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was too. I'm, I'm not and familiar. Two with DJ, one of which he lost, and then one of which he got sparked out in. And one against uh, Deverson Figueredo, who he lost bad. Sorry, two. Two against Fig, because one was for vacant title. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. So only, only would have been on the line for Benavidez, and he got destroyed. And then the second one, you're destroyed again. So he's had plenty of opportunities. Okay. Um, I would say that like Dodson came closer in his first fight with Demetrius Johnson than Benavidez did in his first fight with uh, Demetrius Johnson. Some guys think that the, um, the second cruise fight was a bit of a robbery and some of my colleagues do. Uh, I don't really think it was a robbery, but you know, Benavidez is definitely one of the best fighters to never win a, a title, but he wouldn't be my pick. Um, you could go with Sakuraba, who never never won the Pride title. Um, love you know, it. He won the, yeah, I love I love Saku. Obviously, he's, he's one of my all time favorite fighters. Um, again, he's on my wall. Love love Sakuraba as does Ed, as do a lot of the fight site guys. Um, you mentioned Vandalay destroying Rampage earlier. Unfortunately, done the same thing to my beloved uh, Sakuraba. 
Um, and uh, Basaku, you know, not really the kind of guy who, when I think of titles, I think of, you know, long title runs, et cetera, et cetera. Like, Saku was unfair not to win a title because he really deserved one, but much more of a kind of tournament guy, uh, a freak show fights guy, just a ballsy guy who gets by on his just sheer sort of canny nature and ability to fight anyone. You know what I mean? So I'm not going to go with that. I'm going to go from a guy from the modern era. I want to go from a go with a guy who was close, but no cigar, partly to his own fault, not making weight. And some guys think that he was very close in his last fight against a guy who mentioned a lot of times in this podcast, because he's the man of the moment. I don't think he was, but I think he had pretty interesting tactics. He's a guy who, like John Jones, who we've been speaking about, has beaten a lot of uh, uh, former champions or former challengers or that kind of thing. And the guy for me, the best guy to never win a title, probably would have went with Mendez, but Ed had him. So I'm going to go with Yoel Romero. Ooh, I like it. I like Yoel that. Yoel is a beast. Yoel is a beast. Obviously, wrestling credentials, explosive just a, a freak of a fighter who could do nothing and then explode and just destroy you. An insane chin. Another guy who surprised me because I watched him back in uh, Strike Force and he got, he got stopped by Feijal. And I thought, this guy's, you know, he's got a lot of athletic gifts, but he's probably never going to make it. Goes down the middleweight, absolute beast, absolute tank. And obviously in the second Whitaker fight, some people say a draw. Some people think Romero might deserve to win it. I think for me, that's one of the top three greatest fights in MMA history. Um, the first one's pretty damn competitive and Rob had one leg and it's a super impressive performance by Rob. Um, and yeah, you know, Yoel, Yoel went ham in the second fight. Rob's a lot more aggressive in the second fight. But if, if you put a gun to my head, Adam, and said, what is the greatest fight in MMA history? It's that. It's, it's Whitaker Romero too for me. It's right up there. It's this amazing fight. Um, so dramatic, and, but Yoel missed weight. So he, you know, even if he'd won the decision, he, he couldn't have won the fight. Um, and then Izzy, you know, like I was expecting a totally different fight from that. Izzy, and again, look, going back to the Lomachenko-Lopez thing, people say, Yoel didn't want to do anything. Izzy couldn't do anything. No, what Izzy did was, he was the only guy to fight Yoel Romero at middleweight that didn't come out with years taken out off of their prawn. So clever in that fact. What Yoel did was not give Izzy any looks so he didn't get knocked out like everyone else has had the shit kicked out of him. Clever. What we get there is a double, is that kind of chess match, so. Well, in hindsight, I do believe, first of all, that's a great choice in Yoel Romero. I love that. Um, I do think that Ed might have also taken Joe B. I'm not sure. But one thing's for sure is, is that in hindsight, after watching the beginning stages of uh, Paulo Costa versus Izzy, I then said to myself out loud, well, now it fucking makes sense why Yoel Romero went in with the game plan that he went in with. And I actually now go back and credit Yoel Romero due to that performance because we saw what potentially could have happened to him. Do I think Yoel is a bigger freak than Paulo? Yeah, absolutely. However, youth is on Paulo's side versus Yoel Romero. And uh, perhaps he's not as athletic. He certainly doesn't have the wrestling credentials as a guy like Yoel Romero. But I have to say that in hindsight, you look at the game plan that Yoel put up against uh, Izzy, and uh, it was a hell of a game plan considering the ending that we saw in Paulo Costa. Absolutely. And um, hey, it doesn't make for a great fight. 
Um, you can't say that only... If Yoel had just run around for the whole fight and moved backwards, you would have said he didn't want to engage. He was scared of getting knocked out. But actually, you can see that both of those guys are looking at each other thinking, right, basically, they're both natural counter-strikers. And oftentimes, in a matchup like that, two counter-strikers can cancel each other out because they're both waiting for the other guy to lead and they can't get a good read. So that's what happened in that fight. I mean, I'll probably never go back and re-watch that fight, but people after, I don't know if you remember, Adam, people have forgotten already that loads of people the day after that said, Yoel was robbed. Yoel deserved to win that fight. Um, I don't really think you could, for me, like a draw would have been perfect because not really much happened. I think Izzy did deserve it because he was more consistent with the kicks, with the leg kicks. But a lot of people came out saying, Yoel was the guy who wasn't scared. And actually, Izzy was the one who was scared to engage. Totally the opposite of what I just said. So people have forgotten about that already because it was a dud. And in 10 or 15 years' time, historians will say it was a dud. There won't be any controversy about the decision. Um, you spoke about Costa as well. It was an amazing fight. Um, Yoel pulling out every veteran trick in the book to kind of survive. Basically, every fight that Romero has lost, um, apart from the first Robert Whitaker fight, there's been a case that he could have won. You can't say that for Chad Mendes. You can't say that. I'm sorry. Let me just say one thing. In the championship weight class, so in you know, 185, where Yoel contested for the championship, there's not really any fight that you could have say, oh, man, I think he definitely lost that fight. With Benavidez at, at uh, 125 and 135, there is. Uh, and with Mendez, obviously, at 145, there is. Really competitive divisions. Um, middleweight, 185, obviously less. It's more of a top-heavy division. But Yoel has been consistently fighting in that top-heavy part. Hasn't been taking crap gimme fights. He's generally been taken on, as I say, either world-class fighters or former champions or former challengers. And more often than not, he's split the head open. So, Yoel, for me, I mean, if I can't have Mendes and I can't have Benavidez, I don't think Sakuraba really fits the criteria. Um, Yoel, for me, uh, I think it's got to be. Well, I love that response because uh, Yoel Romero is certainly one of the gems in the UFC, given his age, his athleticism, you know, his background, you know, as a bronze medalist in the 2000 Olympics in Sydney as a freestyle wrestler. Uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta give it to Yoel. That is certainly a freak athlete and somebody that I believe that a, a lot of people behind the scenes have avoided him in terms of getting into the octagon with him due to the, just the absolute ferociousness of him. And, you know, the allure there there is an alert to him being that age but still having that you know level of testosterone showing and and whatever the case may be um you know people are probably scratching their heads the thought that he's never been caught with anything or whatever the case may be and then you know guys with lesser physiques have have been caught so you know i i do love your response with yoel romero why don't you uh you know are there any sentiments or thoughts that you would like to wrap up with well, just quickly, obviously, he was once caught, and actually, it was literally proven to be an over the one of those things where it yes, actually yes, was yes. proven. Yes, it actually was proven to be an over the counter thing that wasn't listed. Yes, sir. Allah, Tim Mintz. Tim Mintz. Yeah, and usually you say, oh, well, of course, it's some over the counter shit. But actually, they proved that, and you know, we always say an athlete's got to know what they're putting into their body but actually was not listed on the ingredients for this product, like a whey protein product or some sort of recovery product. So the one time they've caught Yoel, and look, is everyone natty in the UFC? Probably not, but they actually, you know, it's, you've got to be a fucking idiot to get caught. 
the one time they caught him, he was li- he was right. He's like, man, I haven't used this shit. You know what I mean? I literally haven't used it, and and they vindicated him. So, yeah, I mean, uh, closing sentiments. Uh, what in terms of uh, what we've discussed, or, or or you know, going forward, or everything we've discussed going forward, where they could find you, et cetera, et cetera. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, sir. Um, look, so thefightsite.com is the fight dash you know hyphen site dot com. Uh, check us out on the patreon.com slash fight site. Um, look, I'm not one of these guys who's like begging for charity, but you know, Adam, we're trying to do really good work here. And the only way we can continue to do this work is with support from the fans. So I'm not going to tell people, go to our Patreon and support us. I'm going to say, go to the website, go to the fight site.com, go to the YouTube, which is the fight site. Um, check out our stuff. And if you like us, which you know, if you listen to this podcast, it's the kind of stuff you're going to be into. Please, consider supporting us on patreon it starts at just three dollars a month and you get access to a lot of exclusive stuff that way it then goes to five dollars a month which you then get all that same three dollar tier and then you get access to our discord where we have the kind of conversations that you and i had having now adam uh, you can talk to the staff ask some questions and then further up we have uh, 10 and 20 dollar etc etc tiers where you can actually then ask for catered Cost custom content uh, catered to your own whims and desires. So if you want an article about a certain fighter or a certain technique or want something discussed on, on a, one of our podcasts, then you know you can pay for that as well. And um, we just really want to keep this going because we know there's a market for this stuff, and uh, we know guys like you, Adam, really enjoy our stuff, and we hope that more people will. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to sort of uh, we're trying to. I just want to say that this way, Adam. I didn't start the fight site, but obviously Ed runs the fight site now, but I started it. I did not start the fight site because I wanted to own a website. I wanted to run a website. I started the fight site because I wanted a website for the kind of stuff that I like. I thought if no one's going to do it, I might as well fucking do it. So that's why I did it. I did it because I thought this is my dream website. I know the collaborators. I know there's so many talented people that I'm friends with. Let's bring them all together. And that's why I did it. And I know for a fact there's a lot of people out there like yourself and other people that have supported us so far that enjoy the same stuff I do. So please come and support us. Let us grow. Let us do more content that people will enjoy and uh, even expand our, our your sort of content we create even more. And as I say, it's not, a, it's not a charity thing. If you just want to come and watch our free videos and uh, just click on the website and read our articles for free, Hey, I'm more than happy. Follow us on Twitter at fightsite.com. Spout out, you know, fightsite and D-O-T-C-O-M. Give us a follow. Check us out and um, maybe you'll like us. And uh, all I ask, Adam, is that anyone listening to this gives us a chance. That's all. Absolutely. Well, I think that anybody that is looking to grow their wealth of knowledge in MMA and getting a more in-depth view of what perhaps the naked eye is missing on, I encourage you to follow or, you know, join on that Patreon fight hyphen site.com you can find them all on twitter as well individually you'll be able to delve in that once you've hit that follow on twitter kyle mclaughlin i thank you so much for being on the show today man adam man i really appreciate you having me on and uh, it took too long for us to do it so let's do it sooner next time yeah absolutely thanks a lot my man